You're listening to J Voices, the Asheville JCC podcast dedicated to the Asheville Jewish community. When you're lost in the woods and the wind and the wandering calls you onto your knees. I'm your host, Belle Crawford. And a whisper consoling will rise through the trees. And for season two of J Voices, I'm your co-host, Seth Kellum. This is episode two in a two-part series about Judaism and creativity. Today, we have the honor of speaking with performer, singer-songwriter, composer, multi-instrumentalist, and educator Billy Jonas, who over the past 25 years has perfected the art of the neo-tribal hootenanny with audiences around the globe. Jonas has received numerous honors and awards, including an American Federation of Independent Musicians first place gold, multiple parent choice golds, and the New York Times Best Listing. Billy, we're so honored to have you on RJ Voices podcast. Thank you so much for being here. How would you describe your art and what first inspired you to start making the type of art that you make? I was first inspired to be a Jewish musician long after I was inspired to be a musician and long after I was inspired to be a creative being. Being creative started sometime, you know, right after I was born. And then in high school, I just made a conscious decision that this was going to be my life's path. Some aspect of mining creativity and, and creating things that would, that would be my work. So I made a bunch of decisions that aligned with that. And then in college, I was in a band called the Big Bang Theory, which was all found objects. This was long before the television show, but long after the actual theory was developed. And so we we used to also be called a garbage uh, collective and performance uh, art ensemble. So it was the Big Bang Theory Garbage Gamelon and Performance Art Ensemble. And after that, I was in a band called the Billies. And we began playing in schools. And from playing in schools, I began working in sometimes Jewish day schools. So I slowly developed this very diverse bunch of venues and styles that were fun and that people responded to because there's lots of things that are fun that people don't respond to and I I still pursue those but not <laughs> to the same degree and so it's this balancing act because sometimes people respond to stuff that's not fun so it's always this tightrope kolo lam kolo geshir tsar ma'od it's a narrow bridge to find the things that people respond to and that are also fun for me to work on and so sometime around let's see I think it was eight years ago it was around 2012, 2013. I was invited to to have an Ashira after having attended in the early 2000s. And they said, why don't you come be a teacher? And I said, yeah. And right at the same time, I was invited to come to Song Leader Boot Camp, which is in St. Louis, to be a facilitator. And I said, okay. It was just that classic thing of doors opening and me saying, I think I'll walk through this and see what happens. And that's how most of my career has occurred, and I'm grateful for that, just doors opening when I wasn't expecting them. That, in alignment with my um, aforementioned kavana of having um, established that I wanted to be a creative being and make my living that way, and that music would be the primary medium for that. So, you know, I would say that's been my process, was just at some point um, really getting the download that being creative and what was the thing music was the primary outlet though not the only one and then 
watching doors open and then doing my best to walk through them in as balanced a way as possible. Children sleeping restless when their blankets start to hum. Alas, old MacDonald had a farm in Wisconsin. I, you know, if I, if you don't mind my jumping in right here, I got to work with Billy as that transition was happening. And Billy, my memory is that you and I went to a Shabbat Shira, which is kind of the sister of Habaneshira. And I walked in with Billy Jonas and everybody recognized him immediately. And it was, you know, the same people who were appreciating your secular music ultimately became the same people who now thrive and use and share your Jewish music. And so it was it's kind of been exciting to be present as that transformation was happening. And then all of a sudden, boom, Habaita came out. And then since then, all of these PJ Library albums have come out. It's just been absolutely incredible to watch and to be able to share your music has been extraordinarily special. I love that. I love that you've had the bird's eye view and the uh, running right alongside view. And it's very gratifying. And what's interesting is music that inspired people initially was secular, but it was Jewish as well because I'm Jewish and because there's a very particular perspective. I didn't really know that. I had a rabbi friend of mine, his name is Rabbi, rabbi Randy Fleischer. He said, you know, Billy, this is in 1998. He says, you know, your music is very Jewish. And at that time, he might as well have said, you know, your music is, uh, is, um, tastes like spaghetti. You know, I just like, what? <laughs> so I had to think about it. And slowly, as I climbed more into that realm and inhabited my Judaism more fully, I began to understand what he meant, that everything was coming through this very particular lens. So Seth, I appreciate that, that you were able to, to uh, enhance the history I was giving with that perspective. Because that's absolutely true. The secular music was the doorway that a lot of folks in the Jewish world found me. And then I began to get a little more explicit with uh, liturgical music or, or music that fits more into the service or, or into the holidays. And uh, the, the sidestep was uh, pretty smooth. That's really interesting. That kind of actually answers another one of the questions um, that we had, which is how has your relationship to Ju Judaism changed over the course of your artistic career? And how has that change been reflected in your art? I mean, I think that answers that a little bit. Is there anything else you want to add to that question? Or Well, my relationship to Judaism has definitely deepened. There's no question. And, and a lot of that was uncovering it. It's not like I had to added on as much as I had to uncover the things that were blocking me from seeing what was already there, which was a, an attitude and a perspective and an inclination it came from the way I was raised and the synagogue I went to as a kid and the choices I've made as an adult based on all that and probably genetic memory as well. And it's been a process of refinement as to how I want to broadcast that, I would say. That's been the, the most interesting evolution for me, where I, you know, I wrote some political songs a while back, and that didn't fly so well. I, re I was sort of dividing my audience. So my tactic has been to find the things that f ring really true for me and, and will invite people into a deeper uncovering of who they are in relation to themselves and their neighbors and and the world and God. And 
the specifics of, of political stuff I've kind of set aside. And so that's also, besides just the content of the songs, it's the content of how I present myself. You know, there are events that I might be invited to that are less inspiring than others. I'm mostly inspired by events and holidays and gatherings that invite us to connect with each other on the basis of a relationship to God and to each other. Billy, I've noticed that twice you've used the word uncover, which I really appreciate. Once in talking about uncovering the Judaism that was already existing, and then again a moment ago in talking about some of the kavanah or intention of your music is for people to uncover things in themselves. Can you speak more to that? Well, sure. I read liturgical texts and things. The more I climb into the idea that we are complicit in all that we are and all that we experience, as opposed to things being done to us, as opposed to sort of a, you know, the end of that spectrum is victim uh, psychology. So as opposed to being a victim of circumstance, that we have agency and that we are in partnership with the divine in creating our reality. The more I climb into that idea, everything I read in the prayer book and in the Torah amplifies that perspective. And so it's almost as if everything one needs is is right there if one has that lens. And so I like the task and the job of polishing that lens for myself and then sharing that with other people. And that lens basically that we are complicit, that we're in partnership, that this is a dialogue, this is a dance with the divine, opens portals of understanding to what's already there. So with that in mind, I was looking at the prayer, the Shema. Shema, you know, the first six words at least, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. And my first thing about that was, wow, we say this every day. We say it multiple times. We, we breeze through it. What's going on here with this, this pillar of our, um, of our prayer faith? And I, I just stared at it and I divided it up. Shema, oh, listen. That, that's, that relates to the meditation that I've been doing. That's great. Yisrael, oh, that means wrestles with God. Oh, well, that's, that's what we're all doing. We're dancing. And what does it mean to wrestle? Is that to dance? Is that to tussle? Is that to be in dialogue? You know, it's nuancing it out. And so I think that's what I mean by uncovering is nuancing things out once one has a particular lens in mind. And it's, it's not completely uncovering. I'm, you know, I had to learn that Yisrael means to dance with God. And then I had to say, well, what, what exactly is El and what are all its permutations? And, you know, asking about that and learning about that. And that's been a wonderful process. Snowflake, this we know. God is in the trees and air, the rocks, the birds. Adonai Eloheinu, you know, my Lord, our God, we're part of a collective. You know, you nuanced that out. It is what it is. We said God is God in, in its basis. So, and then Adonai Echad, the oneness of all things is what is divine. And so these, these nuancing out, these slowing down of things, these sort of uncovering deeper resonances is what I'm, what I'm inspired by and what I like to share. God is in. God is in. God is in. I've had the opportunity 
to see you perform in front of an audience of children. And there's just something so magical about seeing you with instruments attached to your ankles and then a big drum and then all these other things that you pull up and you bring children into the experience of performance with you. And I'm curious how you understand the process of sharing your message and your this spiritual component to what you're doing with children as opposed to creating your artwork and sharing that with adults. How would you describe the difference in the experience for you as the artist? Yeah, it's a really great question. I've thought a lot about it. And there's children's music and adult music as far as the marketplace is concerned. And then there's just music as far as I'm concerned. And I find some songs fly better with younger audiences than with older audiences. But I don't really believe in the concept of children's music or even in children. I think of children as being in process. They're sort of childrening. You know, anyone who's five years old is is not a child. They're, They're childing. They're in the process of growing and they're being a child as they grow. And I came to that because I was looking at these folks sometimes in their 70s and realizing they're just kids in, in really old bodies, especially when they would do certain behaviors. And I go, oh, my God, that's just that's the child in them coming out. And then I would see the light in their eyes when when I would play a song that was for young audiences. And this is extremely obvious when you work in old folks homes, you, you're doing the same songs for the kids and for the for the grown-ups, And if you have the two of them together, it's so glorious. It's this incredible synergy. That's my first part of my answer is that it's all one continuum and there's not clear divisions or dividing lines. And I often do songs for kids with adults and often do songs for adults with kids, depending on the context and the place in the set. The other aspect to that, you know, part of that Kavanaugh of wanting to be a creative being and using music was I had an agenda with it which is I wanted it to be healing music and I wanted it to not be laser focused on one demographic. I just was talking to God and I said, God, I'd really like to make music that reaches all demographics, black folks, white folks, everybody in between. I don't want it to be limited to one thing or to one context. And what the universe sent back was music for families. Those are the doors that opened most strongly. And that's where my income began to be most strongly generated. And I just have watched that and I've pushed against it many times because it's challenging in, in the marketplace to get pigeonholed. And I have slowly over the past, I'd say 10 years, refined my writing so that the songs can go in either direction. Not always. Some songs need to go in one direction or the other, but mostly I'm choosing to steer these inspirations that come down the pipeline so that they can be heard by an adult or a child or a childing or an adulting. (laughs) They'll work either way. Then my job is to contextualize them and change my presentation so it feels appropriate. Walmart greets you with a shopping cart. God is in your old jalopy, that's why it goes when it should not be. God is in the Greyhound bus, sitting in back, sniffing glue and watching us. God is in... You've seen that before, haven't you? Thinking in terms of the fact that the Jewish prayer cycle and, and, um, and m- m- many of your songs, not all, but many of your songs draw from Jewish prayers... Um, or or set or set to Jewish prayers, but the Jewish prayer cycle is is um, is uh, a cycle. It, you know, we have we have um, a canon of prayers that we do in the morning, midday, evening, Shabbat, holidays, and I'm wondering if that is evident in your 
um, process or whether that um, does not necessarily um, guide you in any way? That's a great question. And I started teaching this class at Song Leader Boot Camp uh, three years ago called um, Architecture of Worship. And I have really struggled <laughs> to develop it and even to get it on the roster there. You know, I proposed it for two years before that, and they kind of went, yeah, what else you got? Because, uh, well, the reason I'm inspired by it is because I have this intuitive sense that the architecture of a prayer service, as well as the architecture of our year, is designed for a tr for helping us be on a transcendent journey. And so I'm very aware of these cycles and very inspired by them and constantly learning more about them. For instance, it's only recently that I understood that Tisha B'Av, the, the morning of the destruction of the temple, is one end of of the process of high holidays bookended, so to speak, by Sukkot, which is the rebuilding of of this of a sukkah, a holy building, whole filled with holes and very holy. And so, looking at that cycle of the tearing down and the and the building up as being all um, integrally bound into the, the 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 transcendent journey of the high holidays has been really helpful to me. And so. I think a lot about that as I'm writing. I don't um, necessarily choose to write songs uh, all the time that that are going to amplify the cycle explicitly. It's more implicit. It's like I really want whatever I do to plug into this idea that it's a transcendent journey we're on, and every worship service and every uh, every year is an opportunity to elevate that. You know, you, you mentioned that you work in um, nursing homes and um, that having children and, and elderly together is, is particularly um, touching. But is do you have is there a story that comes to mind about um, a particular time that you were performing and um, you just felt that things sort of hit a crescendo of experience and meaning for you? Yeah, there was a very salient performance. Uh, it's the first thing that came to mind, and um, and it it confirmed something I had an inkling of, and which has since become uh, the foundation of all I do. Um, this was 1991, and it was what was then called the Black Mountain Festival. Now it's called the Lake Eden Arts Festival, or it's an acronym, Leaf, the Leaf Festival, Lake Eden Arts Festival. And so, in 1991, David Wilcox, who's also a local musician, was playing and. He and I had met in Texas at a folk festival. And he said, come on and join me. And he gave me 10 minutes of his set on the main stage. And I don't know how many people were out there. It looked like uh, a thousand people, but you know, somewhere between 800 and a thousand. And we got on stage and I had never been on a big stage like that, but it just felt so comfortable. It was strange. That said, I had no clue about microphones. Uh, at that point. And so um, I came out, put up, set up my bucket drums on my lap, and three guys came out and just started sticking microphones around me. And I remember saying, whoa, look at all these microphones. And, and it was really cold. And I said, all right, everybody, as we're getting set, I can see you're cold. Why don't you snuggle? 
and squirm and make like a worm. And that's our first song. And so, you know, I, I was just, I just, it just came to, came to mind like let's just make it up as we go and because we needed to sound check so they set up the microphones there's all these guys who are not performing up out on the stage setting things and adjusting microphones and i just start banging on the drum and i and as i'm banging i say all right everybody snuggling squirm make like a worm it turned into a four minute jam and literally by the end of the jam all the other musicians nearby got it they understood this was not planned. This was God coming through. And they had jumped on stage because they said, oh, no holds barred. Let's go. And we had, so we suddenly, like within four minutes, had like a nine piece percussion ensemble and it all rhymed. I don't remember the verses, but I remember the audience singing and dancing and snuggling like worms. And at the end, they, um, it was an explosion of uh, applause and cheering. And, you know, David Wilcox giggling and my friend Bill Melanson also giggling. He was up there with me, uh, too. And we subsequently became a band called The Billies, which was catalyzed by that event. And it really confirmed for me that, that when you're in the flow, you are exposing, again, uncovering the fact that we are an organism. We are an, completely connected. And that's what I've come to view as the job of any performer is to uncover and reveal the fact that we're an organism and, and create us a, a performance and a, a experience that amplifies that oh my gosh i love that so much i can't stop smiling <laughs> that's just awesome so we are almost out of time. Can you let our listeners know where to find your music and how to listen and support you and what you do? My easiest portal to myself is www.billyjonas.com. And there's CDs and videos and things. There's definitely things on YouTube and there's a Facebook, Billy Jonas Music. There's Twitter, Billy Jonas Music. There's Instagram. But my website is a great portal to all that. Wonderful. I'll, I'll put a link in the podcast notes to your website. Thank you. What an honor, you guys. You make me feel special. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, you are special. And this has been a very special interview. I can't thank you enough for joining us. Yeah, this is great. This is awesome. Thank you. Thank you both. I look forward to connecting soon. I'm not alone. When you move through a crowd and the faces keep turning away to the gray of the sky raise your hands through the clouds to the starlight that's yearning to offer six trillion replies you